Tomorrow Today, a podcast where we talk about what the future looks like. But right now, today. My name is Nash Flynn. I'm a comedian and a historian, and I'm here with my co-host, Andy, who doesn't have a last name. It's very convenient for all of us. Yeah, I was brought up by dinosaurs. Just they don't have last names. The only Andy on the earth. It's very convenient and somewhat confusing. Maybe, maybe I'll go with farmer. I can be Andy Farmer since I farm. That seems like a good reason to have a second name is to use it to define something about you, to separate you from other people. And definitely you'd be the only Andy Farmer on the earth right now. Maybe. We should Google it. All right. All right. So what are we talking about? <laughs> Today, we are talking about death. Da-da. The great beyond. Da-da. One of my favorite subjects on the earth. Da-da. <laughs> she was like waiting for that. And then, and then it didn't happen. Then it didn't happen. So then I had to make it happen. And I, that's what I do. I make it happen. That's why they call me Andy Farmer. Grows big turnips. That's that's the full name. That's quite a name. How are you going to pass that on to your children? They don't need my last name. Whatever they're good at. Like, Oh, I see. So we're creating sort of a new subculture in which we just reassign ourselves surnames based on things we're good at. Yeah, why should we be tied to the people that are dead? Which brings us right back to what we're talking about. I want to talk, I want to talk about that like... Maybe not with mics in front of us, because that was a, not what I expected you to say at all. But okay, yes, let's talk about death. Let's let's get into it. So I had the opportunity to chat with Dr. Susana Monceau. She is a, a doctor at the Spanish National University, and she focuses on animal ethics. But in the last few years of her research, she's really delved into this idea of the concept of death. So establishing what animals understand is, is death, and it, that it's not necessarily how humans think about death and forcing that on the animal kingdom, how humans understand death is actually detrimental to animal ethics and understanding death as a topic. So I've been studying death since pretty much the moment I realized I was alive and like self-aware, which is not a long time, actually. I'm not very smart. But what I love about studying death is that either you get people who are also interested in, in death as a subject or the subject changes immediately, and you're not quite sure how it changed that fast. And what I'm finding is that people are really uncomfortable with it. I'm uncomfortable. No, I'm I... just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, no, I was thinking about like the very dumb platitudes people say when you're talking about death. And then I think about like my own grandfather died. and My dad was making jokes about how my grandfather couldn't keep his hands off my grandmother like at the wake. And that's just... Like, and that, that's a huge cultural thing around Italians, I think, in general, that their relationship with death is very, I don't want to say unique, but because I think it's very common outside of like mainstream white America. But it's just like one of those things that stands out to me. And it's one of the stories I've told people. And I just see like the look of like shame on their face for me as though I should be like ashamed of this. But it's like actually like really comforting in a lot of ways that like that ability to engage with the subject of death in like a, a very practical way. And I mean, your grandfather existed and he definitely fucked because that's how you got here. So something to be celebrated for yeah. some people. <laughs> he fucks. Granddad used to fuck. It was a thing. Uh, we have proof. It's here. <laughs> it's here in us. All of our grandparents have fucked. Mm. Mm. And your parents, they're probably still fucking. <laughs> Maybe your great grandparents. I don't know. They're not fucking. No, that's... That's too far back. Well, I guess... They could. Okay. Everyone fucks. 
Yes. That is, okay. That so is that's story, what we're telling yeah. you. Your your entire family still having sex to this day, as long as they're still alive. If they're not, hopefully they are not still having sex. Or I think the law has to get involved. Anyway, let's um not get into necrophilia on this podcast. Not yet. Just yet. Fucking <laughs> Christ! <laughs> I should have done this project alone. <laughs> nope. So we started talking in this episode, in this interview, about the concept of death in animals. And it's not something that never really occurred to me before now, which is... Is that much like how you don't think about how, like, animals fuck? Well, again, a lot of epiphanies in this episode for me. Just a lot of... Just having a moment. I... (laughs) Having a Nash moment. (laughs) Can we put up the technical difficulties music? I feel like I'm going to be saying anyway a lot every time you and I are in the studio alone. You're not, you're not uncomfortable talking about death at all, clearly. I mean, I'm uncomfortable because the subject keeps changing and I have to keep bringing it back. So for humans, we think of ourselves as being very unique in that we are one of the only things that we know of, the only creatures on Earth that from a very early age understand that we're going to die. And that understanding obviously comes, you know, at different levels, but... When we're children, you know, it's our family pet, it's our goldfish, it's our grandfather. Somebody dies and we sort of start to understand and break down the permanence of it. And we think we're alone in that. And maybe we are in in our extent to how we understand death, how we grieve it, if we do grieve it. But Dr. Monceau's research is really fascinating because it's it's showing that we can establish a concept of death that isn't unique to humans and why that's important. And why is that important? Well, we get to that. I won't. I don't oh, want to spoil okay, the ending sorry. for you. Sorry, I'm just so excited. You have to like listen. I we did the work. There's a thing. Yeah, there's yeah. a thing. Yeah, there's okay. a whole thing after this. Okay, so yeah, it, there's this interesting concept of how we reconfigure how death exists or uh, manifests or our relationship with it manifests throughout. Like you know, for humans, it's throughout like our our age and our the our ability to like our brains to change and evolve and to understand death uh, as this very permanent thing and how we relate to it through the people who die and how far that death seems from our existence mm-hmm. and that's obviously more of a first world problem or situation i guess you might want to say right. than uh, many other parts of the world because death has been like very sanitized in order to, you know, commodify it, make it a part of our existence. Something that happens, we mourn along with it. But in that process, we're able to extrapolate like a lot of like identity and meaning through the purchases of the nice casket, the the gravestone, however, whatever eulogy exists for those people, the memorials that may exist for them. And in that process, we don't really grieve so much as we like, we basically buy the the things that we feel are important to reflect on our lives. In a way, we're basically re-commodifying our lives or the, the lives of the people we love because the people that have died usually don't have a lot of say in that process. And it raises a really interesting question about how much are we really engaging with the death itself or are we just putting these layers almost like the way an onion like puts its own layers as it grows. Are we just doing that to the actual experience of death itself and not really wrestling and engaging with that permanence outside of the fact that we don't see those people anymore? Right. So is our own concept of death sort of 
ebbing and flowing based on the fact that we don't actually deal with dead bodies that much. And the people that do deal with dead bodies, we tend to be really weird around, you know? If somebody comes up to you and they're like, yeah, I'm a mortician, you're like, okay, I'm not going to shake your hand today, sir, because who knows what you've touched. But all in all, you can thank the Victorians for that. Yay. Yay, history. You know, in, in Victorian England, the funerary culture sort of explodes um, and it becomes this like very, you know, memento mori associated class structure. And you see a lot during that time frame of like all of these, like how much can you afford? And and that affording often went hand in hand with how much you loved them and how much they were respected in their community. And at the same time, you sort of see this, you know, rise in, in pauper stance for, you know, they were buried farther out, like away from the churches. Um, and you see a lot of sort of their rebellion in very, very small ways, you know, what they could afford to do. But everybody's heard of that gravestone that's like, here I lie from the chapel door. Here I lie, like as warm as they, basically. Meaning like, yeah, I'm really far from the church, but uh, we're all still dead, which is fun. And and so as the years went on, they commodified it more. We we started dealing less with with the actual physicality of death. And I think that has been somewhat to our detriment because now we can't even... As, as Dr. Monceau points out, we can't even listen to grandma tell us what she wants her body to look like, you know, what she wants her funeral to look like. And I think that for me was one of those moments where you really understand that the animal kingdom sort of understands death maybe better than us in some ways. I think that story is basically something everyone's heard. And I think we also see this become really evident when unexpected death happens. Mm-hmm. I think we've become so accustomed to the fact that everyone's supposed to live until they're 75 or 80 or whatever, that if somebody dies younger, it becomes this lifetime of sorrow that's attached to that because we don't have the tools to really deal and, you know, accept that reality. The fact that people don't traditionally die before that age is a relatively new concept. Mm -hmm. I have a hard time. Of course, we can't go back in time and like talk to people, but I really struggle with the idea that this is how people have always existed on the earth and the way they engage with death or understand it like in an intimate way when only a couple generations ago, it wasn't uncommon to lose multiple children before they were fully grown. And today, if somebody loses someone at 40, it's like they they can't wrestle that or deal with that for 30 years or 40 years, uh, which I think speaks to a fundamental failure in the way that we engage with death. I agree. And, and I think part, partially that's that's something that history and archaeology is, is attempting to sort of curve a little bit because they did deal with it more often. But we still, you know, the, the grief and the, the funerary rites um, were still there. Did they deal with it better? I'm not sure. But, you know, one of the things that people point to for like understanding death, and, and you talked about the death of multiple children, is they always say that the Puritans, especially in New England, sort of just like, were very, very cold. They didn't really care. But a lot of the the primary source material, you know, indicate for us that, you know, even though they were losing all of these children, it was still detrimental every single time it happened. You know, they didn't get, you know, accustomed to losing children and, and young people just because it happened more frequently. And now when it happens, you know, especially if it's if it's unexpected or if it's depression driven, it tends to be something that we don't ever even talk about again. Like you can't even mention that person at a, at a family event because it's, it's upsetting. And I think, you know, we've gotten to a point now where, where we're starting to erase our own concept of death. If we can't actually have conversations about 
the only thing that unites us now. You know, the planet is sort of trying to get rid of us. And I think it's one of those things that we really just have to grapple with. You know, that's a bold claim. Yeah. Well, you know. Suggest that death is the only thing and not taxes. (laughs) Well, that depends if you're paying your taxes, I guess. Nashlin has never, ever logged on to TurboTax. That's all I'm going to say about that. All you're going to say? All I'm going to say. All right. That's all I'm going to say. I I don't want to wax poetic too long on it, uh, but I think one of the things that became really, really clear in this conversation, well, two things, is A, that Bailey, my dog, cannot wait to eat me, and B, two, shit, I got distracted by my dog. Oh, Classic white woman. (sighs) She's so cute. So evil. We tend to think of, of humans as not participating in the animal kingdom any longer. But we did, and we do. We still very much exist in the animal kingdom. And, and we should engage. Right, exactly. And so the fact that we have to identify and catalog the concept of death for animal ethics and exclude human, or hu- what we're calling human exceptionalism, out of that really seems to me a very apt metaphor for how we view our engagement with nature and it's sort of terrible yeah it's not a good look for humanity and it probably doesn't point to like any signs of us building better relationships with nature if we're continuing to kind of follow this path further and further away where we're basically trying to pretend that death doesn't need to be natural like you know the way the people are obsessed with this idea of living forever 50s the new 30 and you know robots and all that cool stuff that i don't know anything about so if i say anything more complicated than robots i'll just probably be talking about an outdated technology and people just make fun of me so i'm just gonna leave it there i think we should i think we should yeah so the interview is after this it's very very great um and Wow, that was a great sell. You know, uh, it's really, really great. It, it is really, really good. It's a fascinating conversation. Um, and I spent the entire time being like, "Oh my god, this is so fascinating!" Like I can hear myself get more and more hyped as we're talking. And then I had to be like, you know, at the end, I was like, "Thank you so much for coming." I have to go find something to do with all this adrenaline now that I didn't expect to develop over a, like a forty-minute conversation about animals' concept of death. But here we are. He talks a lot about whales. Interested in growing food? No, I mean really growing food. Building systems with your ecology and creating sustainability beyond typical stories of permaculture. If you're interested in this as well as traditional practices around land management and stewardship, tune into the Poor Pearls Almanac, a podcast that's focused on history, ecology, and of course, growing food. Available wherever you get your podcasts or at poorproles.com. a little bit about how you got into this field like what interests you about death and dying non-humans yeah so first of all thank you so much for inviting me it's um, a pleasure to be here and it's always cool to talk about this research um so it's funny that the way I got into this work because everyone always asks me how did you get 
into this topic, which is not, I think it's not such a common question when people are working on other topics, but somehow people are always curious to, to hear why I'm working on, on death. Um, and I think like there are sort of two answers that I usually give. Um, and one is kind of more personal, which is the fact that I started working on this topic when I was about to turn 30. And I think it had something to do with, you know, that, that moment of my life. Um, I think a lot of people when they turn 30 or when they turn 40, one of these big birthdays, um, we start to think about death a lot. Um, I've heard this happening to, to other people. And I think it did happen to me and though it wasn't really at the forefront of my mind I think at some kind of unconscious level it was probably um, having some influence on me um, but the the second I would say the more conscious reason why I got into this topic is that while I work on animal minds my training was in animal ethics um, and I consider myself to be an ethicist at heart and I always whenever I work in animal minds I always have um, ethics as kind of a backdrop and and as my, my aim with my research is to help ethicists and to um, have some sort of influence on ethical debates surrounding animals. And so this has meant that the capacities that I've always been interested in studying have to do with those that we that we refer to when we tell ourselves how special humans are, right? The sorts of capacities that we build these narratives around and that allow us to ground this idea of, of human superiority over the other species. So I did my PhD on animal morality and then I've been working on um, the concept of death because these are two capacities that we think of in, in these terms. For sure, for sure. So actually, um, that's a great segue into my next question. So in the in the paper that we're talking about, death is common, and so is understanding it, you and your co-author sort of identify a couple categories that define the process of what you're calling concept of death. Can you, can you walk us through those categories and how you establish them? Yeah. So um, you mean the, the notions of non-functionality and irreversibility, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so mm, the idea is um, what we are working with in this paper is the notion of what I call the minimal concept of death. Um, and this is kind of um, sort of a philosophical notion. It's, it's a theoretical construct that allows us to determine when we can start to speak of an understanding of death in other animals. So to put this in, in lay terms, when we ask the question of whether animals can understand death, the first thing that we need to answer in order to address this question is, well, what does it mean to understand death, right? Because there are very different ways in which we can understand this notion. And under some conceptions, understanding death can be seen as something very intellectually demanding, right? So if we think, for instance, about the human adult concept of death, it's a concept of death that's very, very sophisticated, very complex, that um, comes with all these um, additional notions and like um, emotional hues and um, all these rituals that we attach to death. So there's a lot that we built into that we build into the concept of death. But I think that that um, starting the question, like 
at trying to address address the question of whether animals understand death from the perspective, like starting from this very complex notion um, that human adults usually have, is I think um, a misguided way of addressing the question because it's simply not very um, fair to put it in these terms. So the idea is, um, the idea that, that drives my research here is that the concept of death is not actually something binary, something that you either have or you don't, but rather it's better to understand it as a spectrum. So something that admits of higher or lower degrees of complexity. And we can think of this very clearly if we think about how um, human children acquire the concept of death. They usually don't acquire it overnight, but rather it takes them several years to develop it. And usually developmental psychologists um, speak of um, children needing 10 years to develop a full-blown concept of death. But I always use this, this example. If we think about, you know, what it what it's like to um, play uh, video games such as Super Mario with a seven-year-old, you can easily see that they have some notion of death. Or if you're watching, I don't know, The Lion King with them or something, they can they can grasp something about what happens to Mufasa, right? So there there are um, there are concepts of death that are less complex and that uh, presumably fall within the reach of less cognitively sophisticated individuals. But of course, not everything counts as a concept of death. So it, it, it was important for me to start by determining what exactly needs to be in place um, in order for us to um, be able to say of an individual that they understand death. What's the bare minimum that the individual needs to understand? So the concept of death, the full-blown concept of death is understood to have various subcomponents, which are, um, there are up to seven. They are non-functionality, irreversibility, universality, causality, personal mortality, inevitability, and unpredictability. So these are all like sort of the, the, the main characteristics of what it means to die, right? The idea that dead individuals don't do things, that this is a permanent state, that it applies to all living beings, that it's caused by a breakdown in the bodily functions, that it will apply to ourselves, that it's inevitable, and that it's unpredictable. Um, and what I argue in my research is that out of all these seven subcomponents, the two that you actually only really need are non-functionality and irreversibility. So in order for us to say of an animal that they understand death, what we need is for the animal to understand that dead individuals don't do things in specific, that they don't do the sorts of things that living beings typically do, and that this is a permanent state, meaning that once they are dead, you don't expect these functions any longer. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that was a really long answer. <laughs> no, 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 that's a really great answer. Um, and I, you know, as I was reading your paper, um, I started thinking about how humans have developed this process, um, because it really isn't just a switch you turn on one day when you're like, I'm a human being. Now I understand the concept of death because I turned six and somebody has died in my life. It really, it is a process. And so understanding that we've denied that to everyone else because we think we believe in this human exceptionalism it's not something I ever really thought through, but as soon as you started saying it, I was like, why have I never had this thought before? But we really do think of humans as being separate entirely because we are capable of this intellectualization of saying not everybody participates in in ritualization and emotional factors of death like we do because we have language and we have societies. And so I think, you know, one of the one of the pieces of your paper I found really fascinating was was the discussion about the whale, the whale mother who carried her calf for like a bunch of miles across the ocean. 
Um, and everyone just, you know, when we when we think about that in term of, terms of humans, we're like, oh, she's sad or she didn't understand death. But you took issue with both of those things, saying that she could have easily understood death and it would have been just as important if she had left the calf at the bottom of the sea in terms of defining the concept of death. Yeah. So the the idea, by the way, it wasn't just a bunch of miles. It was it was a thousand miles in over 17 days. So, you know, a long, a long <laughs> time, a long way to carry a calf, especially when you don't have hands. I mean, it's it's really amazing the case of that of that whale. In fact, the the biologists who were monitoring her, they were really afraid uh, for her survival because she was barely eating anything. She was really obsessed with carrying this calf of hers. This case has received a lot of attention, and what we what we mentioned in this paper is. Um, you know, we, we, we take issue with, with another paper by Jennifer Bonk and Sarah Brosnan, where they, where they say, well, you know, how many mothers actually um, let their um, babies sink to the bottom of the ocean and this receives no attention? You know, maybe we're just um, focusing on this, but this, it was just a, a strange um, case. And our point when discussing this is that Actually, letting your 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 infant, your baby, sink to the bottom of the ocean can also demonstrate that you understand that the baby is dead. So, our main idea is that there is what we call an emotional anthropocentrism that's very um, very present in the study of animals' reactions to death. And the the idea behind this emotional anthropocentrism is that the reactions of animals towards the dying and the dead are only interesting if they resemble human reactions. This is kind of an implicit assumption and sometimes made pretty explicit um, in a lot of these um, studies. And what we argue is that actually grief and the concept of death are two different things. So it's, um, it's two different questions, how an animal emotionally reacts to death and whether the animal understands death. And we we argue that these questions, they're both interesting, but they should be treated as separate questions. So it's definitely interesting whether animals can grieve, but um, the presence of grief doesn't necessarily signal the concept of death. And also animals who don't grieve might still be able to understand death and might still have very interesting behaviors that, that evidence an understanding of death. So if we focus excessively on grief, what we're doing, what's going to happen is we're going to miss out on a lot of opportunities to learn about how animals um, relate to, to, to death. And also the fact that animals may not grieve in necessarily human-like ways. You know, the, the case of this whale, Taliqua was her name, the case of Taliqua is kind of very, very hypnotic for us. It's very amazing because we can really identify with her. We, we think of this as a case that kind of evidences human-like emotion, but animals may manifest their grief in many different ways and they don't necessarily have to be human-like. So an example that that is kind of interesting for me, that's not necessarily an example of grief in animals, but it's definitely an interesting one to consider is the, the example of pets who feed on their dead owners, which is a very common behavior. It's disturbingly common. And 
you know, um, it's especially, I think it's especially disturbing or puzzling or fascinating, if you ask me, when it comes from dogs, because I think we can, I think we can kind of expect this from cats, but dogs <laughs> do it too. A lot of dogs do it. And we, we don't have any doubts that dogs love us. We have, in fact, a lot of scientific studies that show that they do love us. But there have been many cases of dogs eating their owners with a bowl full of food and like 45 minutes after the owner died. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So it's kind of um, it's it's kind of amazing. And it's also very interesting how this behavior happens because dogs, um, they're scavengers as well as predators. And if they feed on a corpse that they find in the woods or whatever, um, they would start um, from the abdomen. That's where they usually feed from because it's it's it has all the organs and it's very nutrient rich or they might go for the limbs. But in cases of dogs feeding on their owners, most of the bites are on the face, which is interesting because the face is the is the center of emotion. And it's what dogs mostly pay attention to when it comes to to observing their owner's behavior and trying to understand uh, what the owner expects from them. Um, so it's quite likely that that this behavior starts as an attempt to get some sort of reaction from the owner, from the, the emotional center of the owner. And then after a while, maybe they get frustrated, they start biting or licking, and at some point they draw blood and then they start eating. And so it's, it's, it's kind of um, an interesting behavior, I think, but it's, it, ha- it receives no attention in the empirical literature on animals' reactions to death. You can only find reports out on this in like forensic journals, not in animal behavior ones. And it's not mentioned by the, the main um, scientists working on this, this topic. And I think it has to do with this emotional anthropocentrism. Like it's a behavior that we find kind of puzzling. Also, I think partly from a weird perspective, you know, from the perspective of, of Western societies where mortuary cannibalism is really not a thing. So uh, we're just puzzled by this behavior of, of eating someone that you love when they die. Right. I mean, it feels like rule breaking for us, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, it's puzzling. If if they love us, why would they eat us? It's uh, very difficult for, for us to understand. I think if, if we had um, that kind of ritual in our societies, which we do in some human societies, um, then maybe we wouldn't finding such a puzzling behavior. Maybe we would find it uh, one of these human-like reactions to death. Sure. I mean, I have a, I have a golden retriever, and I have to tell you, I'm going to be watching her a little bit more closely now, because <laughs> she'll eat anything. So, you know, I better not lay on the ground too long, is what I'm saying. So so in thinking about in thinking about Bailey and also um, other animals, why is it important that we, we open these borders up for, for concept of death to include non-humans? I think it's important. Well, I for one, find it interesting as a question in itself. So I am find it fascinating, the question of how um, animals might acquire a concept of death and what degrees of complexity can this concept have? Um, because I think what, what fascinates me about this is, on the one hand, the fact that they can't learn through um, oral means like humans do. So the way we learn is we don't really interact with corpses much, usually most humans, but we learn from our parents, from watching certain movies or reading certain books or, you know, our grandparents dying and our parents explaining to us what this means um, and so on. That's how we usually learn. 
Whereas animals learn, at least insofar as they're non-linguistic beings, which maybe some might not be, um, but uh, as far as we know, we are the only humans capable of communicating um, linguistically about death. So assuming that um, other animals would have to learn through their own exploration of corpses and um, their own life experiences surrounding death. So I find that very interesting. I also find it very interesting to think about um, how the concept of death of animals might differ from our own, uh, what kind of like sensory or semantic dimensions might this concept have that are different from, from our own concept of death. Some might be interested in this question because of what it tells us about the evolution of human um, cognition surrounding death. I'm not particularly interested in that question, but I know that a lot of people are. So they they might be interested in this because of that. And I also think that there are ethical reasons for being concerned about this question. One of these ethical reasons has to do with what I already mentioned regarding this notion of humans as the superior species, which of course we use to justify um, our boundless exploitation of nature, right? So any, any project that can serve to bring this into question, I think is, a, is an interesting and worthwhile project. But learning about what animals understand of death can also maybe tell us something about what we owe to animals. It might tell us something about the wrongness of killing animals or the wrongness of killing animals uh, who are bonded to other animals. And it might tell us something about our end-of-life management practices in zoos or in households. It might tell us something about whether we owe animals a chance to grieve um, when their loved one dies, um, etc. So I think there are all these questions that that come from reflecting on how animals understand death. And I think they're important questions to ask. I agree. And, and you know, we talked a little bit before we, we started jumping into this conversation. So I have a background in, in historical death ways, but that only as, as that pertains to humans. And I think what started striking me most about how you're measuring concept of death in animals is, is that we sort of have this understanding that humans understand death the most um, because we can communicate about it. We live in societies where, it, you know, we had to establish all these rituals in order to grieve and deal with it. But but in reality, I think the animal kingdom deals with the experience of death way more than humans do, especially modern humans where, you know, I don't remember the last time I saw just a corpse lying around that I just ignored. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, this is something that we take issue with um, in the paper where we we argue against those authors who have construed death primarily as an absence. Um, and this is very common in the philosophical literature on death as well, thinking of death as an abstract concept, as, you know, the, the absence of a person. And I think that's a very, again, weird way of, of thinking about this. Um, so WEIRD stands for Western Educated Industrialized Rich and Democratic Societies, in case someone doesn't know this acronym. So it's a, um, a weird way of, of thinking about death that, that's definitely not going to be present in all human societies, but it's especially not going to be the case for animals. So um, in nature, uh, a corpse is not something that just disappears unless they're eaten by a predator. Of course, they, this can also happen. But very often the corpse um, stays there and starts decomposing. Or maybe, um, you know, we know many cases of primate mothers who carry the remains of their infants for days, weeks, even months. 
so the baby stops moving, it stops making noises, it stops um, being warm to the touch, it stops responding to touch, but the mother continues carrying it. And it's not a full-blown absence like it would be in our case. It's like certain functions are no longer there, but um, the corpse is still very tangible. It's very present. So I think that allows for a different kind of way of experiencing death and learning about it, right? I think it's 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 just a very different experience. And this this is where the title of our paper comes from. Death is common, so is understanding it, right? There's this idea that death is everywhere in nature. There are many, many ways to die. Depends a bit on the animal community in question, but in certain communities, mortality rates are super high. So if you live in nature as an animal, you're going to encounter death many, many times. And in the end, understanding what death is in minimal terms is not that big a deal. This is what we're trying to argue, that it doesn't require very sophisticated cognition. Um, the kind of cognition that it requires is pretty widespread. We can expect it to be pretty widespread. So um, it's it's quite likely that the, at least the minimal concept of death is going to be present um, in many animal species. Right. And I, you know, I, as I'm thinking about it, I I'm struck by the fact that that humanity has managed to remove itself from this this intimacy of conversation and and I wonder if we could measure humans concepts of death you know taking a look at some of the societies right now against some of these you know less human centered concepts of death if we would still manage to to hit all the marks of understanding its permanence in its absence when we sort of glorify things and pump corpses full of fluid and you know, either leave them on display in the case of of Lenin, who's still just not buried just in Russia, um, or, you know, to literally bury them and move on or to mummify them. You know, over the course of history, I wonder if humanity would still meet all of those bare minimum concepts as we go on. Yeah, I think it does kind of um, uh, affect our concept of death, um, the way we deal with it. And one example that I that I like to think about is is the, the notion of inevitability, the inevitability of death. You know, this is this is a fairly complex notion that I think is probably restricted to linguistic beings, simply for the reason that you can't develop a notion of the inevitability of death solely on the basis of your own personal experiences. Because, you know, for death to be inevitable, this means that for everything that is alive now, there is going to be a moment when they die. But of course, this is all going to happen in the future, a big chunk of this. So you can't develop this notion on the basis of your own experiences. And the way that humans learn about the inevitability of death is because we tell each other. And then generation through generation, we've told one another everyone dies because we've been seeing everyone die for you know centuries and millennia and so we know that everyone will die because we've seen everyone die and it's inevitable so we kind of know it at a very um intellectual level but then most of us or many many of us go through lives as though we weren't gonna die right i think that the the inevitability of death is not very much present in our own lived experience of, of death. And it's very often the case that people don't really reflect on this until, you know, something happens. They either 
turn 30 or they, you know, or they have a near-death experience or um, something, um, you know, a bad diagnosis or something like that. But we very often live or go through life as though we were going to live forever. And, um, and also we hide death. We make lots of efforts to, to hide death and um, death is very much taboo. Um, so in my book on this topic, which is only published in Spanish, but I'm hoping it will get translated soon. In, in my book, I talk about this a little bit in the, in the final chapter. And I, I talk about how, you know, it's not well seen to talk publicly about a miscarriage you had, for instance. Or, you know, if, if someone is diagnosed with um, a fatal illness, you know, it, it, it's taboo. It's, it's something that we only talk about, um, kind of whispering and um, not really in front of that person. We, we become extremely uncomfortable if they tell us something like that. Or if we think about, um, I don't know, our, our granny um, at 90 something telling us about what what's going to happen when she leaves and when she when she dies we're always like oh come on don't talk about these things don't be you know we it's it's like we are we're so uncomfortable talking about death and it, it the whole thing makes us super uncomfortable and the way we deal with it is by hiding it we hide our grief as well it's not it's not well seen to show it in public And I just think it's not very, it's not very healthy. I think it, it's, it's making it worse for all of us. It's making it more difficult to cope with it. It, it amounts to us not really um, being okay with our own mortality. I like to think of my work as kind of trying to help us reconcile with our own animal natures. And by way of that, maybe also with our own mortality, Yeah. So, so I think that's something we need to work on. And right. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, even over the course of human history, we've, we've developed all of these processes of not dealing with it. Um, you know, we've, we've got all these religions to say, you don't actually really even die. You just become something else. And so even the permanence of it, I think we've denied to mm -hmm. a lot of our participants. Um, so in, in thinking about, you know, where we go from here, what does the future of this conversation look like? Do you think that there's, there's a benefit for human exceptionalism in this regard? I'm calling it exceptionalism, even though I think you and I both sort of just walked through how it's not really exceptional. Um, and, and so like, what do, what do you want to see the conversation become for this topic? Yeah, I think that would be a great outcome if if we if we came to realize that we are another animal, we are just another animal, and so we don't have the right to to use the resources on this planet as though they were only ours. I would like for my work to help us really um, see that we are animals; we're just another animal, and as such, we we have to be much more respectful of this planet and of the other species. Um, yeah, that's what I would hope. <laughs> I hope it too. I want my grandmother to be able to talk about her inevitable death in peace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go on, Granny. Um, so if, if our listeners are looking for more of you or want to read your, your papers and study your work, can you tell us where they could find you, where, what the name of your book is also? Yeah, so uh, my book is called La Tarihuella de Schrodinger, which means Schrodinger's Possum. Hopefully it will come out in English at some point in the near future. I would love that. 
Yeah, me too. My Spanish is not great. Not good <laughs> enough for that. And they can find me on my website, which is susanamonso.com. And I'm also on uh, Twitter at Susanna underscore Monso. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been so fascinating. Anything else you want to add before we sign off? Um, no, just thank you for listening. It's Absolutely. Thank you so much. <laughs>